welcome to our Aspen Live podcast, Recommendation for Photo Protection of PN for Premature Infants. This podcast is based on the recently published Aspen Position Paper in Nutrition and Clinical Practice, Recommendations for Photo Protection of Parental Nutrition in Premature Infants. My name is Allison Blackmer. I'm the Director of Clinical Practice, Quality, and Advocacy at the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, Aspen. And this podcast and accompanying short videos are sponsored by Fresenius Cabby. We appreciate the support in disseminating this important information. It's both my honor and my privilege to introduce our discussants today. First is Dr. Daniel T. Robinson, a neonatologist at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital at Chicago and faculty at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Robinson led a working group of the Aspen PN Safety Committee to develop and publish this position paper on photo protection of PN for premature infants. Congratulations on this important work. Next, we have two clinicians from Cook Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas, who have implemented PN photo protection plan and want to share opportunities and challenges that they have encountered. First is Beth Dean, PharmD, BCNSP, BCPPS, Senior Clinical Pharmacy Specialist, Nutrition Support, and PGY1 Residency Program Director. Then we have Katie Haggerty, RD, LD, RN, BSN, MBA, Neonatal Intensive Care Nurse. This podcast will be in the question and answer format which we will address to the discussants, but towards the end, we will open the program up for questions, which can be entered into the Q&A functionality. We will be also releasing two short videos for your viewing soon, so please take a look for announcements in your email and in Aspen Clinical Practice Highlights newsletter. So without further ado, let's get started with Dr. Robinson. Dr. Robinson, can you give us some background on why premature infants who receive parenteral nutrition might need photo protection of that PN? Sure. And first of all, let me thank you for the opportunity to talk about this work uh, and certainly acknowledge my co-authors. This was definitely a team effort. And uh, of course, a special thank you to Bev Holcomb from Aspen, who was instrumental in making this happen, as with uh, many things in Aspen. But to start with just some context, we can think about the idea that the moderately and extremely preterm infant population um, will be exposed to parental nutrition immediately after birth. And um, during the time when their enteral feedings are initiated and then advanced to full feedings. And for the extremely preterm or the, the smallest, most premature kids, that exposure or the duration of parental nutrition can last much longer than a week, perhaps weeks for some. And also if uh, an infant is critically ill, uh, exceptionally sick, that can also extend the exposure to parental nutrition. So then if we move from the parental nutrition circumstance or exposure, Let's then think about, for all of us, the fact that we have endogenous antioxidant systems. We have enzymes, we have pathways that are in charge of dealing with oxidant stress. And that is the fact for premature infants as well, but it's the case that those systems are not fully developed 
when you compare that to older children and adults. So now we can then move to parental nutrition again. And it's a fact that light exposure to parental nutrition, that's whether that's the individual nutrients um, before the final solution is um, compounded all the way to the final admixture, that light exposure triggers a photooxidation process and the generation of oxygen radicals, generally speaking, oxidative stress. And so all of those pieces in summary gives you the, the scenario of uh, a population that is exposed to parental nutrition for sometimes uh, in the timeline of weeks. Um, they have immature endogenous antioxidant systems and they're being exposed to something they need, the parental nutrition or PN, yet that solution is also um, contributing to oxidant stress. In addition and, and separate from parental nutrition, just um, the nature of being critically ill in an ICU, um, there may be other exposures to oxidant stress as well. For instance, if a premature infant is on the ventilator, they're requiring oxygen therapy, that can uh, contribute to oxidant stress. Um, if they need multiple blood transfusions, um, that might be another source. So parental nutrition exposure is, is one piece of this big picture here. And that's why we think it's important to address light exposure um, through photoprotection. It does seem that there are some key constituents in parental nutrition that are most susceptible. Now, all uh, components are probably susceptible to the photooxidation, but it seems that the multivitamins and the intravenous lipid emulsions or the ILEs are quite susceptible and really um, contribute the biggest burden to that oxidative stress. So those are some of the, that's the, the background and, and big picture as to why we have come to think so much about this for the premature infant population. Great. Thank you so much for providing um, such an exquisite description of the background. Uh, we're all very appreciative of that. I guess my next question for you is, are there studies that suggest improved outcomes with photoprotected PN in this population? There are, there's a range of data of publications, studies that have contributed to recommendations for photoprotection. And the range includes um, preclinical data. So in vivo animal studies, in vitro testing, looking at biochemical markers, perhaps when sampling, again, just the PN admixture. And then there uh, certainly is a group of clinical studies of varying designs, cohort studies, retrospective studies, as well as randomized controlled trials in preterm infants that collectively, we believe, support um, the recommendation for photoprotection. In the animal studies, they give you uh, sort of the benefit of seeing the histologic evidence or the, you know, the, the pathology after either light protected PN or a no light protection of the PN in the animal. And that has shown evidence um, without the light protection of um, increased pulmonary fibrosis or, or lung injury. There are also liver specimens that have shown 
without the light protection, increased markers of steatosis um, or you know, an indicator of liver injury. In the PN solutions themselves, when they're just um, sort of mocking up a clinical situation where you've created a bag that you might infuse into an infant and then shielded different uh, or shielded the PN in different scenarios, um, completely shielding the bag and tubing, um, partial shielding or partial protection. Um, often those studies look at markers of oxidative stress, such as peroxide levels and concentrations. And then moving into the clinical data in the preterm infants, again, a, a range of study designs, including randomized controlled trials that have looked at um, biochemical markers, uh, again, these um, peroxides or, or markers of oxidant stress, and then clinical outcomes such as bronchopulmonary dysplasia or BPD, which is a chronic lung disease of prematurity, um, and certainly an important outcome of mortality. The data or, or a, a study, I think, that most recently really sort of enhanced everyone's attention um, was a, a meta-analysis, which included four randomized controlled trials, all in preterm infants. And those uh, studies collectively, uh, when the meta-analysis was run, showed a decrease in mortality in the preterm infants um, associated with light protection. So um, certainly an important outcome, um, a notable result, but of course we need to and, and should always acknowledge limitations of, of studies, of data. Every study has some degree of limitations and so we, we certainly were cognizant of that. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning um, for this meta-analysis specifically, for those four studies, sort of moving back to the primary studies, um, without surprise, these studies were not blinded. So it's a little challenging to blind everybody, the investigators and the clinical staff to whether the PN is light protected or not. We'll, we'll talk about what it takes to actually light protect. So that was one limitation, even though these were uh, randomized trials. Um, the other notable piece is that there were 800 infants total in the meta-analysis. One of the studies really carried the bulk of the weight in the analysis, and one study uh, enrolled just under 600 infants. So it's about 75% of that total population in the meta-analysis. So a lot of weight for that one study. And uh, again, some other limitations, but um, acknowledging that the implementation of the meta-analysis itself, those methods seemed appropriate. And again, we acknowledge um, both the, the findings, which are significant and important, and the limitations of everything that went into that. Sorry, one more thing that is definitely worth emphasizing also is that in the primary studies, of, of any design or any nature, um, we never identified any adverse clinical outcome that resulted from light protection. So I think that's another important thing to remember is that implementing light protection um, certainly does not seem to cause any harm. Thank you, Dr. Robinson. Again, a very uh, robust answer there. We really appreciate that. Um, one thing that you mentioned was the concept of partial and total photoprotection. And I wanted to ask if you could define uh, the difference between partial and total photoprotection for us. 
Sure. So we, in the paper, and, and then as people talk about this topic, they might refer to total, they might refer to complete photo protection, um, which definitely is distinct from partial. And so when we comment on complete or total photo protection, we are talking about um, the very start of the process of compounding the PN through the compounding process, through delivery to the patient or the clinical uh, site, and then through to the administration and to the patient. That means that every step through that entire process, there are um, steps taken to protect either the individual component or the entire admixture from light exposure. Certainly a very challenging um, situation to do, and it has been accomplished in those clinical trials. On the other side, the partial photo protection, in short, it means that not 100%, but some of the steps in either um, the making of the PN solution or the administration of that PN solution, the bag or the tubing, um, some portion of that process does involve light protection, but not absolutely 100% of it. And, and the importance of that is at any step, if there is light exposure, that can trigger the photooxidation and the creation of the oxygen radicals. Great, thank you for the clarification there. I was also wondering, can you tell us what the aim and the process of developing this Aspen recommendation paper was? Sure, the aim really was to hopefully provide some very tangible and, and practical guidance and recommendations for the clinicians, for the providers who are prescribing and then administering the parental nutrition and also for all of the invested parties who look at the research and development of um, materials that go into the ability to provide complete photo protection. And so uh, this involved literature review of all the relevant data, again, including animal, in vitro, human studies. Um, and I will emphasize that Although this, the, the, the recommendations are geared and focused on the premature infant, we definitely um, did an expansive search with the consideration that there might be data on older children and adults. It so happened we felt that the most definitive information uh, allowed for specific recommendations for premature infants. So uh, we wanted to give some practical um, recommendations and also rather than say more research is needed, going into this, we had a strong sense that we were going to come up with questions that still needed to be answered, but we wanted to be fairly specific, you know, as we'll get to when we talk about the fact that we can't actually, or, or that it's quite challenging to achieve complete photo protection, we wanted to be a little specific about what we can do right now and what we're still missing. And so that could be more productive when we talk about next steps in research and development. Great, thank you. Can you give us a little bit more clarity about what the recommendations are specifically? Yes, in short, uh, the overall recommendation from Aspen is photo protection of the PN admixtures 
and intravenous lipid emulsions for premature infants. As I mentioned, we did not feel that there was sufficient data to formulate any recommendation for older children or for adults. So the suggestion is specifically for um, infants. We also recommended that for each healthcare organization that they gather the key players, the key stakeholders to um, review what their capabilities are and what their current capabilities are not in terms of photo protection and uh, discuss and, and hopefully implement as much as possible. And separate from that, um, thinking of those in the, the clinical environments, um, separate from that, um, we have a recommendation that the um, outsourcing sterile compounding facilities through where my, uh, the institutions in which I work, we order through them, receive our um, PNED mixtures from them, um, that they also review their entire process and identify any steps um, and all steps that are amenable to reducing light exposure, starting with the compounding and continuing through delivery to the, the clinical site or the um, recipient of the, the PN bag. And finally, we of course recommend more research and um, <laughs> development of materials so that this is not only feasible, but cost efficient and practical. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you so much for providing the specifics behind the recommendations. I'd like to now turn to implementation of photo protection. And so I'll address the questions to Dr. Dean and Ms. Haggerty. First, let's review a recent study that we at Aspen conducted to find out about what the current practice is with respect to photo protection. So Dr. Dean, can you summarize the findings of the current practice survey for us? Sure. Uh, Aspen in May of 2021, they conducted a survey to assess the current practice and educational needs regarding the PN photo protection for premature infants. And their findings illustrated the educational and practice gaps that we have around this practice in our population, as well as a desire for the practitioners to be compliant with recommendations as well. And what they found in the survey was that looking at current practice first, 30% of respondents currently photo protect the PN bag, 10% currently photo protect the PN tubing and filter, 13% currently photo protect the lipid emulsion bags and or syringe, 7% currently photo protecting the lipid tubing and filter, and 11% currently photo protecting during compounding and transport other products. They also looked at the future plans of respondents and 88 to 94% plan to photo protect the PN bag and the tubing and or the filter. 71% plan to photo protect the lipid bags and or the syringe and filter as well. And 71% as well plan to photo protect during the compounding and transport phase. So overall, this survey demonstrated that Overall, photo protection is not happening for the most part, but clinicians want to do this and want to implement it. But it was felt that they needed recommendations, education, protocols, and such to help with this process. 
Thanks for reviewing that with us. Um, certainly, uh, there's definitely an interest and, and a ways to go, but um, we appreciate you sharing those results with us. Uh, before we sort of move into the implementation practices that exist, I did want to ask again, Dr. Dean, if, if you could outline the PN components that currently mention photo protection in their package insert information. Uh, yes, um, Aspen had gathered this information that the fish oil-based lipid emulsions, the potassium phosphates, the cysteine product, the selenius acid, as well as two chambered PN products all recommend photoprotection for stability and during storage as well. Okay, great, thanks. Um, Ms. Haggerty, could you tell us about the existing materials and current practice that would permit photoprotection? Yes, right now we use the amber overwrap um, and cover bags and then amber sleeves for tubing and amber tubing for the TPN bags. That is not available in the microbore tubing for the TPN syringes currently. And then additionally, our pharmacy has the capability to keep everything photoprotected during the compounding phase and they prime all of our tubing under a hood in the pharmacy to keep it protected as well. Great. Thank you for sharing your experience. Dr. Dean, can you tell us some ways to comply with photo protection with parenteral nutrition bag using existing materials and devices from a pharmacist perspective, particularly during the compounding um, that Ms. Haggerty just mentioned, and also to the transport of the patient care unit as well? So um, looking at the process of say labeling of the PN final container, the lipid emulsion container, and using amber bags for these products, we have to think about the potential for harm or error when we do this. And there's the potential for having a wrong patient label on an amber bag, um, such that the labels don't match between the label on the bag and the label on the the amber bag during dispensing or packaging. And so one of the solutions that was proposed during the Aspen um, research would be for pharmacists to consider cutting a window in the amber cover bag so that the label on the PN container or the lipid emulsion container could be visualized. They, after you cut the window, then you could just tape around the label to avoid the light exposure between the amber bag and the PN container or the lipid emulsion container. And this step would avoid labeling two different times for each product. And if you already had it protected in the pharmacy as such, then when you're transporting, it would already be covered. So that would help as well. In terms of what we do, uh, we have been photoprotecting our PN and lipid bags and tubing for close to 20 years, we think. Um, nobody can remember an exact date of when we started at Cook Children's, but for a long time, it's been our standard of care. We have always labeled the PN and the lipid bag itself with no additional label on the amber bags. And then the nurse lifts up the amber bag to look at the label. The question I know that was um, brought forth with that is that when you do lift the bag, there is that 
potential to expose to light, um, that breach of the photo protection. But Katie can talk to that as well, but it's a very brief. And a lot of times these babies' rooms are really dark anyway, so there's not a lot of light in their rooms. And it actually can also add an extra level of potentially add that HIPAA protection by having a bag over it with no label on the outside as well. Great. And um, you just already sort of touched on this a little bit, but I'll just expand on the question for you, Ms. Haggerty, from a nursing perspective. Can you tell us some of the ways in which to comply with photo protection during PN administration with the bag and tubing using existing materials and devices? Sure. So everything arrives to us already covered in the amber bags and the tubing itself is already primed, like I mentioned, down in pharmacy so that we don't have to risk any light exposure in that process. And so pharmacy does most of the hard work for us, I would have to (laughs) say appreciatively. And then Essentially, the potential for error or harm would be if the incorrect bag was placed. However, that is avoided because we only label the actual product, not the bag. And then when we administer the TPN, we have nurses co-sign. So you have that double check and balance and it's a brief just lift of the bag to like visualize the label, scan it into the system, you know it's going to the right patient. I know that they have mentioned the proposed solution of cutting the window in the amber bag. However, I feel like our process works for us without any compromisation of the product. Great. We do have a couple of questions coming in from some of our listeners today, but before we get there, I do want to just ask a couple more questions of you all, and then we'll turn it over for Q&A from our listeners. But if both of you could reflect on some of the barriers since you've been doing this at your institution for close to two decades, if not two decades, Mm -hmm. if you could reflect on some of the barriers to implementation of these recommendations at, at this point, given your experience. Again, like I, it has been a standard of care for a long time, but I would say one of the first things that I would recommend to people to help with potential barriers is making sure that all team members are educated throughout the whole process so that everyone can see the value in this. And this includes the pharmacy technicians, um, the pharmacy buyers, the pharmacy administration, all those people involved in buying these products and um, compounding our parental nutrition, I think is really important as well as the nurses at bedside realizing the importance of why we're doing this. It's not to make it harder for them to see it or any of that, that it's important for the babies. And one other thing that I'd just like to mention is over the years, an error that occurs more often than we would like is that we would have the TPN and lipid rates switched on the pumps. And we, for many years we did where we had amber bags on both of the products. We just a few years ago switched to over the lipid bag. We put the white opaque bags over that just for a visual for the nurses to know that that's the lipid going into that pump versus the TPN going into the other pump. And we have found for us 
that this has been a good safety measure to help in preventing that error that we have had, even though that's not what is the, the primary recommendation is for the amber. We've, um, there is data out there about the white opaque, specifically mentioned in a textbook by Pikaki, and the textbook's called Pharmaceutical Photostability and Stabilization Technology, if somebody wanted to look into that as well. Great, thank you so much. Um, before we open it up to a Q&A from our listeners today, I'd just like to ask our discussants whether you have any further thoughts you'd like to share at this point. Dr. Robinson, anything from you? Yeah, one key thing, you know, the recommendation is with the acknowledgement that complete photo protection is a big challenge and, and maybe near impossible for uh, a lot of sites in the US. And so uh, while I mentioned something like the meta-analysis and also the primary clinical trials and the outcomes associated with the light protection intervention, um, those outcomes are in the conditions of complete photo protection. So then why do we still you know, make a recommendation knowing that many sites can only achieve partial photo protection. The studies that look at partial photo protection do show a reduction of oxygen radicals. And part of it too is looking ahead to perhaps the scenario where one is able to easily achieve that. Um, that that's a, a big piece of this as well. One other thing in response to that as well is I know I talk to a lot of pharmacists that say they use the amber cover bag and they don't do the tubing and they feel that that's adequate, but I really reinforce to them just because of the rates of the TPN or the lipids in those babies is so slow that the exposure in the tubing is way more than I think people think about a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's important concept for everybody to remember. That's a really good point, Dr. Dean. Thank you so much for bringing that up and that educational point to everyone. Sometimes the rates can be as slow as 0.1, 0.2 mLs per hour. So it really is sitting in that tubing for quite a long time. Wonderful. Well, I think at this point, I'd like to open it up to questions from our audience. Um, and just as a reminder to everyone, we will be using the Q&A functionality in this Zoom webinar rather than the chat box or raising your hand. So if you do have a question, please type it into the Q&A box and we'll do our best to get to that. Um, before I ask the first question that's come in, I do want to clarify for those listening that the studies that have been cited in today's podcast are also included in the soon-to-be-published paper. So if you're looking for the actual citations of the studies that have been reviewed, those will all be in the citation list in the manuscript itself. So for the first question, um, and this is a, a really important question, um, one of our listeners is asking, has anyone investigated or looked at which wavelengths of light might be the most contributory to the problems that we're seeing? I think uh, the answer is yes. The bottom line with this is the a range of wavelengths can contribute. So we know that ambient light can trigger this photooxidation process, particularly relevant to the premature infant. There are has been the, the recognition that the bilirubin or the phototherapy lights 
can also contribute as well. And then of course, um, sunlight. So it really, I, I think, can be considered that in our sort of everyday clinical environments, one should expect that the, the, the lights that are in place could trigger the photooxidation process. Okay, great, thank you. Um, we have another question from our audience asking if the panelists could spend some time elaborating on how a pharmacy would implement photoprotection during the compounding process. For example, are the source products covered? Is there filtered light in the compounding area? Sort of what's the practical nature in which a compounding pharmacy can protect during that process? I know that our pharmacy does, um, in terms of storage, does keep everything light protected during that time frame. While it's actually under the hood being compounded, I don't believe we have any kind of filtered light at that point. So that would be a place where we would have a breach of photoprotection at our institution. Great. And then turning over to sort of the nursing administration side, um, for Ms. Haggerty, um, can you elaborate on whether you guys are using amber sleeves over the tubing or an amber wrap or the tubing itself being amber? Um, what's the administration set look like, I guess I should say? The tubing itself is amber. Okay. So your institution is not using the um, over wrap? No. Okay. Kind of along those same lines, not sure if you'll be able to address this question given your current practices, but... Do you think? Do you know if nurses have would have a significant preference between amber tubing and the amber overwrap? In my mind, I feel like, like I mentioned earlier, the way we do it currently, it takes all the guesswork out. We simply get it as is from pharmacy. They do all the work for us. So, in my mind, I <laughs> I like the way we do it with with just the tubing and not having to apply a sleeve as well. It seems like a simpler process and, you know, you don't have to worry about did the nurse move the, the sleeve and then didn't move it back or that sort of thing. So it sounds like you have the tubing available to you at your institution. Do you know if the amber overwrap is easy to access or where people could get it if they do not have access to the amber tubing themselves? I think it comes available on, on a, like a big, um, long thing that just cut, you just cut a length of it. Um, I've, I've seen the product, but it's been a while. So I feel like it's out there and available. I just don't know anything specifically about ordering it since we don't. Great. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Are there any other questions from our listeners today? that we have not addressed. If you do have them, please um, enter them into the Q&A box and we'll make sure to answer those. I think the, the comments about what's preferred and what works at a site, it, it nicely gets back to the recommendation that each um, healthcare institution gather the key players and figure out what might actually work best for their process and then work to implement that because that's the best chance for success when, as, as you two mentioned, when all parties um, come together and, and talk about all of those steps um, and everyone understands that process really well, then, then that's going to uh, be the best chance for success. 
Great. And when we think about success, um, we do have another question about safety related to this. And Dr. Robinson, I know you mentioned that photo protection in and of itself has not been shown to be harmful, but perhaps the practices of photo protecting may have some safety ramifications. And I'm wondering if any one of you might be able to address whether any adverse effects have been associated with covering the PN or the intravenous lipid emulsions, perhaps mixing up the patient bags um, due to some of the labeling uh, requirements that we've kind of touched on already. So if you could address that, that would be wonderful. I'm gonna make, a, I'm gonna let Dr. Dean and Ms. Haggerty address their experiences, but uh, coming back to sort of the call for, or the, the acknowledgement of gaps and needs, we do need materials for the everyday use that should minimize that, the, um, the bedside nurses and the pharmacist's ability to check the solution, um, thinking of precipitates, seeing and knowing exactly which, which line is infusing where on your pump. And in say, if you have a critically ill kid with a number of drips uh, and another of stopcocks, which, which one is where. And so that's part of the call for more development uh, of materials. The only thing that I could speak to is, as Beth mentioned early on in our process, when we were using the amber bags for both the perineral nutrition solution and the lipids, that we had a few instances where the rates were getting mixed up and we maybe weren't tracing our lines as thoroughly as we should have been. And since we've gone to using the opaque white bags for the lipids, it definitely is a great visual for us to constantly know which which is which and keep a closer eye on that. And like Katie said earlier, there's always two nurses that check it and they're supposed to actually take after it's hung and they're supposed to trace it back to the pump. Both nurses are supposed to do that to help with that. So that is something else yeah. that they do. We do that when we start the infusion and then we do that again at shift change during nurse handoff. So we physically are making sure that everything is running at the rate it should be. Excellent. It sounds like you have some good safety procedures in at your institution, and certainly we appreciate your years of experience with this. I guess along the same lines, there is another question from one of our audience members. Because you're using the amber tubing, do you know where one may be able to find amber tubing or what companies might supply that or how to order that? Um, it actually, I know it will be in the... Um... The video that we, um, the Aspen's putting out as well, but I am not sure. I know that it's something we we get regularly. If somebody has that question, I can I can get it from from the buyer. I thought we had it in the other presentation as well, but I'm not seeing the specific product itself. Okay, thank you. I'm not seeing any other questions come into the Q and A at the moment, and so. I guess I will just thank everybody for coming. We definitely appreciate our discussants um, sharing this information with us. And we are very appreciative of the listeners and the audience that participated by asking questions. I'd like to remind everybody to look for the full publication as well as the two short videos that have been mentioned. Both will be coming soon. Um, and this uh, recorded podcast in the future. Um, so look for Aspen announcements about that. 
I do also want to take a moment to thank Fresenius Cabby again for providing us the opportunity to discuss this important topic. And as always, thank you to our audience for listening to the Aspen podcast. That's all for this episode. Please return to the Aspen channel of SoundCloud often to listen to our newest podcasts. To support what we do, um, please share, subscribe, and leave a review over on SoundCloud. So thank you very much. We're very appreciative of Dr. Robinson's time, uh, Dr. Dean, as well as Ms. Haggerty's. And for those of you who have joined us this afternoon, thank you so much. Thank you.